We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Sock Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hi, and Hi. welcome back to Salt Talk Radio. This is Neil Bradley. With me tonight is Joe Quinn. Hi there. And this week, we're discussing the two big issues out there at the moment. What's going on in the Middle East, of course, and in Ukraine, how they're both related. I mean, it's hard not to see what's going on in one place is completely reflected in what's going on in the other place. With us today is Finian Cunningham. Finian is a journalist. And he has written extensively for such publications as Daily Mirror in the UK, The Irish Times, and The Independent. He's traveled widely, and he's currently writing regular columns for Press TV, Strategic Culture Foundation, and other websites online. He's joining us this evening, so a big welcome to you, Finian. Uh, thanks, Joe. Um, glad to be on your show, and thanks very much for, for inviting me. I much appreciate that. No problem. Good to have you. No problem. Yeah, it, it's been on our it's been on our mind to invite you on because your articles pop up now and again, and they're always right to the point, heart of the matter, and short, easy to understand. Yeah. If you're ever in doubt about what really happened there, Finian's articles are yeah, cut through the bullshit. Yeah. Uh huh. No, well, uh, yeah, and you write very frequently as well. I mean. Just in the last few days, I've written well, Finian, a couple of things. Neil just mentioned uh, your your background. What's your um, you, you used to work for the kind of the Irish media, the Irish press, mm. in a former life. I did. Sorry, sorry, guys. I'm just getting you mixed up. Is this is this laterally now? I'm talking to to Joe. <laughs> That's me. Yeah, oh, I have a more northern accent than Neil. <laughs> southern. Right. Yeah, I, I, um, Joe. I used to work for. Um, yeah, the, the all the newspapers here in Ireland, uh, you know, they, it started out at the very local papers like the Down Democrat and the Newry Democrat. And then, mm-hmm. as, you know, journalists do, you know, you, you kind of work up. And I ended up working for the national papers like, um, you know, the, the um, well, the Irish uh, Mirror and then the, the Irish, I was doing a bit of work for the Irish Times and, and latterly the Irish t- depend, Independent. But, um, I mean, that's why I left all that, because I just got so disillusioned with their coverage. It was so, you know, uh, you know, kind of uh, minuscule and so, uh, y- you know, like um, narrow their, their focus. And, and that's, not, that's not just a condition of the Irish newspapers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the Western media in general. And they were dealing with issues in a very kind of compartmentalized and totally, um, you know, um, Already way of looking at things and like say Iraq when I was working in the Irish Independent I mean that was around 2006 and um, I mean they were just recently the American military occupation force were bombarding Fallujah and um, it was being reported in the Irish Independent and Western media in general 
like as a sort of a, you know, well, this is a kind of an occupation and it's not going too well and we're trying to pacify this country and bring democracy. And to me, it was just appalling. You know, this was just like full on illegal occupation of a country, full scale war crimes going on. And the, the, the kind of the complete mismatch of in reporting of, of the reality it just completely disaffected me from working in that kind of media, and, and that's why I, I I resigned from it. I just walked away from it literally, and um, you know. So. Why, why did you? Um, well, not you, you said why. Yeah, that's a good reason to walk away for, from it for sure. But did you did you ever figure out why the media, as you said, across the board, no matter where it is, particularly in the West, uh, why they tend to, you know. Mm-hmm. present present uh, the truth in such a kind of like uh, essentially a biased way you know pre- present the, new, the data in a, such a biased way i mean did you ever see any uh, examples of uh, of orders coming down to suppress stories or you know how, how does it work why i mean who decides on that is that just a consensus reality amongst ordinary people or is there some kind of a manipulation going on mm. Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess like a lot of your listeners are, have, are aware of Noam Chomsky and mm. um, his, his uh, colleague, uh, oh, what's his name, uh, Herman? Uh, Ed Herman, yeah. Ed Herman. I mean, they've done great analysis and, uh, you know, theor- theorizing of, um, you know, the manufacturing of consent. And um, yeah. that, that is, that's certainly that's all part of it. Uh, I think a lot of it too, um, Neil, is it's just kind of it's 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 even more mundane than that. It's just lazy journalism. You know, people just get that. You know, like the Irish News, the Irish Times, the, the Irish Independent would just follow what, what. Okay, they turn the televisions on that day. Okay, what's CNN saying? What's BBC saying? And they just go along with that flow. You know, they mm-hmm. just. So that's what's making the headlines today. That's the narrative. Well, we'll just kind of report in that sort of way. Um, I, I don't, it's not, well, in my experience anyway, it wasn't like as if somebody was going into the Irish newspapers with talking points and saying, okay, this is what you, this is how you've got to cover it. This is what you've got to do. It wouldn't be as um, blatant as that. It's more, more what diffuse you've got to do. kind of, um, be as um, what the hell? Are you there, Fanny? Yeah, I'm still here. Uh, uh, I don't know what's going on there. We got some uh, bad there. feedback. Do you, do you don't have a speakers on, do you? You're obviously on a headset, yeah? Uh, no, no. Some, uh, bad feedback. Do you, do you don't have a speakers on, do you? You're obviously on a headset, yeah? Uh, actually, it's playing back twice. Yeah. Uh, Neil, I don't have headsets on. I'm speaking into my computer as usual. It was fine. How about if we call you back? Because often you can Skype someone. Yeah, little... You know what might be the problem? Is we're doing sort of a three-way type thing. Yeah. That, that might be the problem because... We're doing sort of a three-way type thing. That might be the problem. Let's let's just let's just call. I'll just hang up and call you back. Okay. All right, we're gonna. Uh, I'm just gonna go straight ahead and get him back online. Uh, that was crazy. I've never had that kind I've of. I've never had that kind of weirdness now. before. Big delay. Oh. 
Okay, guys, are you there? That was crazy. I've never had that. Uh, oh, I was doing it again. And it's not on your end either. Okay, guys, are you there? Yeah. Uh, oh, I was doing it again. <laughs> it's not on your end either. Okay, guys, are you there? <laughs> uh, oh, I was doing it again. Echo. That's a real pain. Echo. Um, you notice that I said something before you would call Finian back. Yeah. That was a block call radio thing. Yeah. Maybe uh, maybe Finian could, 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 let me just get him back here. Maybe he can dial into us. Back here, maybe you can dial in to us. As soon as we connect, it starts. Finian, can you call us? Hey, sure. Give it a go. That's bizarre, you know. That's what you get. But, uh, we have such a run of good shows. Internet radio. No hiccups. I know. We hear you fine. This is the, the, the joys of Skype, you know. Uh... It dropped us from Skype and from our virtual studio. The joys of Skype, no? Uh, it dropped us from Skype and from our virtual studio. joys of Skype, no? Uh, it dropped us from Skype and from... Um, Finian, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe we might have, we might have to... Um, Finian, I don't know... What's we might have to schedule for another time, you know? We might have to... Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real thing. You can hear the feedback as well, right? I can, uh, Neil. It's, 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 yeah, it's not just echo. It's replaying several times. Yeah, it's not just echo. It's replaying several times. Look, guys, can I just suggest take ten minutes to yeah. try to sort this out? Try it back. Good idea. We'll do that. Okay. I'll just sit here for another ten minutes. Okay, no problem. Okay, thanks, Benian. And meanwhile, are we on air? Uh, yes, we are. Sorry about that, listeners. Uh, send your hate mail, as always. Lots already. <laughs> well, uh, Finian was talking about something interesting and yet mundane, but it is interesting. There are no orders handed down. There are in the States. You get talking points. And, you know, it's pretty easy to see who's taking cues from the White House or from the Department of Defense. Yeah. But in other countries in the West, it's laziness substantially that sees an Irish publication pick up and run with a story that they think is, well, I presume Associated Press over in the States verified this before they ran with it. If AP is saying it, it's the gospel truth, so we'll just run with it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, of course, there's all sorts of, uh, to a large extent, the official narrative and the story can be, especially in, in wartime, is um, is defined by the op- the office of kind of you know wartime propaganda or um, you know office of military information or whatever they call it. Basically, I mean, they will certainly have a lot of control over uh, what comes out of conflict zones. I mean, think about all the Western journalists embedded. Embedded with troops, yeah, uh, during the Iraq War. Oh, it was very explicit there. Yeah, they set up a command center, and the journalists went to this place every day mm -hmm. in 2003 and got the feed directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but and at the same time, it's um, I mean, the the more insidious part of it is the way that we're talking specifically here about the Western media 
but it has extended kind of globally to a large extent, but very particularly in the West, the media is, um, you know, they're just ordinary people. They're, they're, they're subjected to journalists, etc., or are the product of Western society and Western civilization. And it's kind of exceptional nature, essentially, as the, you know, on the heels of the British yeah. Empire spreading, you know, civilization around the world, and then the Americans spreading freedom and democracy. There's very much a, a sense among Western citizens, the majority of them, that um, they are the epitome epitome of uh, civilization and um, you know, freedoms and democracies. They have the best. Mm. They're the best in the world, basically. So it's very difficult for ordinary people to. Uh, face uh, into a, into the reality or, or, or a possible reality, a possible uh, different narrative about who they are and, and what they uh, what they represent as as a civilization and what uh, their leaders are doing and stuff. You know, so it's, it's basically long term mind programming of a kind of an exceptionalist, you know, egotistical kind of nature. It makes it very difficult for anybody to think uh, that. Uh, we might actually be committing war crimes or they might be committing war crimes in our name, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's much easier to twist and distort uh, the facts um, to a more comfortable truth about yeah. that keeps that idea intact yeah. you know, in people's minds. As for the journalists themselves, do you remember that uh, Diana document we watched? The one that got banned? Yeah. I'll never forget the, the filmmaker. It was making it at the time of some hearing or other that took place a few years back. And it was a kind of a... It was, so, it was in some court in London and it was going on for a period of about two or three weeks and the journalists would gather in a kind of dedicated press marquee to watch the live proceedings during the day. And the filmmaker got a press pass and he was sitting in with them. And he commented during the documentary that he was amazed by how the journalists were sitting in there. Okay, yeah, the proceedings were largely boring. But now and then, something really, really dynamite was said. And they were twiddling their thumbs. Oh, looking at their watch. Oh, going on Facebook. Oh, not interested at all. It just it wasn't so much that they were in on it. They just didn't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're not exactly... Again, it's people who are not exactly... Um, in the job for the truth, they're in there to simply report the facts, and they're going to report, you know, the truth in quotes, uh, and it's obviously biased or swayed by their own prejudices, their own narratives, and the society of which they are part. Their, you know, their nationalistic feelings, their national pride, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that's going to, you know, it's, it can get into authoritarianism here as well. You know, I mean, people. The real problem here that applies to everybody, including journalists, is that you know people. Um, tend to be authoritarian, that is, they look towards authority uh, for protection and for guidance, and they hold uh, authority figures in high esteem, think that they're essentially better than them, that's why they are the authorities, and therefore, and even as Bob Altamar has uh, shown in his books, they even allow for authorities to commit uh, certain uh, crimes, let's say, or, you know, um, be less, let's say, less moral than the average person. because they're <clears throat> because they're the authorities, they're allowed to get away with certain uh, transgressions, etc. Uh, they'll be excused. So, um, yeah, it's a real. Uh, as with many things uh, in this world, when you really look into the problem, you just see how ingrained it is uh, in the population. I mean, the problems on this planet today 
are largely or let's say entirely caused by the state of humanity. Uh, therefore, um, the the problem is that that's the level that it's at, at the level of uh, human beings or psychology and how it operates, and it's it's very difficult to just come up with a simple solution to it. You know, uh, that's why we often say, you know, bring on the comets type of thing. You know, wipe it all out. There is no other. Uh, yeah. You know, let's start start again type of thing. You know, because that's what you start to you realize just how insoluble the problem is um, when you really look at it, that it's um, people are the problem. And changing people is the solution, but then you see how difficult it is to change people. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Now, having said all that, we've got two conflicts going on right now. That Are they any different from anything else? Well, not really, and yet seems so egregious in the way they're being conducted and the lies that have to be held up that have to be sorry that have to be reported in order to hold up the illusion of what's actually happening i'm thinking of ukraine and in gaza and you wonder if people are yeah just not buying it i think in some cases it, it, it is people are It's so brazen that, at least in the situation in Gaza, people are questioning it in greater numbers. Um, I mean, this situation has gone on for a month now with protests being held across the world. I mean, today I think the British Prime Minister again said Israel must stop. He sure waited long enough to actually say it, but you do get the impression that it, it's so in your face that the state, even if we give the state of humanity being shot through with lies and layers of programming, there's an opportunity here for people to be said about it because it's so different from the reality. It's almost like they've been pulled apart. The presentation of the facts and the facts on the ground yeah. Um, before we get uh, any further than that, I'm just going to try um, playing in again to see if our connection is any better. If not, we'll have to schedule for uh, another time because we obviously can't continue with that kind of feedback going on all the time, hearing ourselves talk back at ourselves. So, um, Benny, are you there? Yes, Neil, uh, I am. Okay. Uh, we don't seem to be getting any feedback right now, so maybe, maybe we'll... Uh, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I still don't hear myself. Good. That's all good. All, all right. right. Go ahead. Neil was just talking there a little bit, Finian, about um, the kind of two situations that are front and center in the media and being shoved down people's throats over the past few months or past few weeks is uh, Gaza, uh, Israel's attack on Gaza and the situation in Ukraine, which is which are appear to be very similar in the sense that you have innocent civilians being having bombs dropped in their heads. Mm-hmm. What's your take on that? I mean, uh, is there any connection? Oh, very much so, uh, Joe and Neil. I mean, very much so. Uh, huge connections. And, uh, I mean, <clears throat> it, let's try to deal with the other issue of uh, journalism or the lack of journalism. I mean, 
in in eastern Ukraine, we've got at least a thousand more, at least one thousand, eleven hundred or more um, casualties from the last three months or so of um, what the the Kiev regime, this government that was put in place back in February, um, which I call a regime, and I think that's quite factual and objective to call a, re- a regime. I mean, it was a, a Western-installed um, new government. The, the, Threw out the um, elected government of uh, Viktor Yanukovych on the 22nd, 23rd of February. Um, so that's a regime. It's, it's a coup. Now, this, this regime in Kiev <clears throat> that the West backs has launched an anti-terror operation, and what they call an anti-terrorist operation in the east of Ukraine, which is largely a, a Russian ethnic population. <clears throat> They're, they, they don't support this new government in Kiev that the West has installed, and yet the Kiev regime, the Kiev government, or the authorities that the West has has um, installed in Kiev have been launching this um, crackdown on the population in the east of Ukraine. And it's resulted in, in over 1,000, 1,100, perhaps more civilian deaths um, through indiscriminate bombing and uh, you know, um, you know, the use of grad missiles, unguided missiles and laterally ballistic ballistic missiles. Um, you know, it's 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 a horrendous kind of um crackdown, uh, you know, merciless uh, you know um military operation against a civilian population. And there's no difference in my point of view, there's no difference between that and what's going on in Gaza uh, at the minute, where the, the Israeli forces, the Western-backed Israeli forces, are also, you know, um, totting up like a huge um, death toll among civilians. But you know, the Western media is, is not covering what's going on in Ukraine to, to a fraction. They're not. They're not covering the the death toll, the the violence that's going on in eastern Ukraine. Now they are, of course, covering it in in Gaza. Um, you know, of course, like you turn on the TV every day, and the BBC or CNN have got lots of uh, reportage or images mm-hmm. from Gaza. But that's that's really not doing the um, the 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 uh, violence justice what's really actually happening in Gaza and um, um, anyway let's break it up here let's talk Uh, yeah Yeah. Finian um, why why do you think uh, you just said that they're not reporting from I mean like you said maybe 11-1200 civilians killed uh, by essentially bombs by grad missiles fired by the Kiev government's kind of shock troops uh, in the past few weeks um, or in the past few months, months. let's say, over, over, um, over that period of time, over 1,000, 1,200, 1,300 people killed, civilians killed. Why is the media not reporting on that? Yeah. Well, Niall and Joe, I mean, Neil and Joe, this is this what we began this interview yeah, on, on, on the the um, appropriate subject, but we got cut off. But the, the Western media 
in my view, it is really just a propaganda system. It follows the government narrative. Whatever their governments deem to be um, the narrative, the perspective on what's to be reported, the Western media fulfill that. They just reciprocate with that narrative. And, and we see that in Ukraine. The, the Western governments, in particular Washington uh, and um, some European governments, they, they want to um, have a regime change in Ukraine for bigger geopolitical objectives of destabilizing Russia. Um, what's going on in Ukraine, what, what the Western governments did was completely illegitimate and a violation of international law. They, they, they usurped legitimately democratically elected government to install a regime that's got very uh, unsavory, to say the least, politics. They're, they're, they're Nazi, they're fascist, uh, they, they very much um, adulate the, uh, the, the, the Second World War collaborators with the, the, the Nazi Germany that, that were in Ukraine at that time, like people like Stepan Bandera, the, the Ukrainian nationalists who collaborated with um, the Third Reich. Now, you know, you cannot possibly, um, you know, justify these people or associate with these people. But the Western governments have, for their own geopolitical interests, which is to destabilize Russia. Now, the Western yeah, for that narrative, I mean, if you were a, I think if you were a neutral, on the, you know, trying to be a national object. You know, journalists, you would look at Ukraine and you would ask a lot of questions about the nature of the regime that came into power in Kiev or, or in, at the end of February, what they had been doing against their own people, in, 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 particularly in the east of Ukraine, the kind of violations they've been carrying out, the, 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 the terrorism that they've been carrying out. Um, now, if you're a journalist, you should ask questions about these issues but the western media is not asking they're not asking those questions they're not looking into it they're, they're carrying out the um, propaganda objectives of their government which is to apologize for the regime change operation that happened in Kiev and then to um, obfuscate the nature of the regime as it's operated ever since when it's um, carrying out the so-called anti-terror operation, which is an Orwellian phrase. I mean, really, they are carrying out a full-scale terror operation against the people in the east of Ukraine who do not want to um, subscribe to this new regime. And they are uh, very much cracking down on these people. They are carrying out massive crimes against the population of the east of Ukraine. But the Western media turn reality on its head. They accuse Russia of subverting Ukraine instead of the reality, which is that the Kiev regime with the Western governments is subverting Ukraine and carrying out massive violations. So the, the, the Western media is very much an adjunct, a propaganda arm of the Western government's geopolitical interests. And let's move on to, to Gaza. So, I mean, really, if you look at Gaza, any rational, normal 
moral, and indeed many years before that, you would just say, look, this is a genocide. It's an awful, awful abomination of international law, of normal human morality that's that's being uh, perpetrated in Gaza right today where, you know, um, people are being massacred every day. But the Western media obfuscate, they twist and they distort the, the, the normal, uh, what should be the normal perception of what's going on. So it's turned into a kind of a war against Hamas terrorism or uh, self-defense and all these kind of like um, uh, euphemisms. And yeah. the Western media, is, Gaza or Ukraine, it's the same well, it's very convey these two uh, in, um, these two scenarios. On one hand, it's it's you know in Gaza, it's self defence, it's kind of a war against terrorism, and then in in Ukraine, um, where it is against state terrorism against a, po- a civilian population, the Western media can distort that scenario into some government kind of um, uh, subverting or, or causing trouble. So what we have got here is that you know, the Western public is being, their, their, their minds, their, their, their perception is being totally twisted by and the machine for the Western governments, for whatever their geopolitical, political interests are, whether it's Gaza, whether it's um, Ukraine, or whether it's Syria or Libya, or you name it, the Western uh, media, so-called independent thinking uh, journalism, is really a propaganda machine, the Western government and their geopolitical interests. Indeed. Um, Those few times I have heard some fairly objective description of what's going on in East Ukraine has only ever been in the Western media to say that that is propaganda coming from the Kremlin, that this stuff about the new quote-unquote democratically elected government of Ukraine is tarnished as being a Nazi regime, and that's Russia's fault. What do you think of that? Um, Sorry, um, Neil, was that... They were saying who was in Nazi regime? Well, there, there have been some commentaries in the West about what's actually going on in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But they will always obfuscate these claims, in quotes, the Kiev junta having, mm-hmm. having Nazi ties and, in fact, behaving like Nazis. And turn that in Russia and saying that that is propaganda coming from the Kremlin. Mm-hmm in an effort well, to harness them. Uh, well, um, Neil, I mean, let's just, the, the evidence um, to verify the um, allegation or the um, depiction of the Kiev regime as, as neo-Nazis is, is, is out there. Uh, it's incontrovertible and, and it's self Declared. I mean, the people in Kiev, this Kiev regime, um, the Shvoda party, adulates, adulates the neo-Nazis, uh, the, sorry, the Nazis 
and, and their collaborators in Ukraine during the Second World War, when Nazi Germany um, embarked on their um, invasion of the Soviet Union in, in June 1941, Operation uh, Barbarossa, when they attacked into those um, peripheral regions of the Soviet Union, like, like the Ukraine, they were immediately um, had collaboration with um, elements within these countries. Uh, well, in, in Western Ukraine, there were there were huge numbers of people that, that collaborated with the neo uh, with the sorry the Nazi um, invasion of the Soviet Union and Stepan Bandera and the other uh, other many other Ukrainian nationalists very much subscribed to the 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 um, Nazi Germany's uh, you know if you could call it ideology of of trying to wipe out subhuman um populations the the, the um Unter mention uh, the, the Jews, the Slavs, they they, they very much uh, you know collaborated with that. Um, so, and these people in Kiev. Lost him there for a minute. Hello. Yep, you're back. Keep going, Celine. Look, it, it's 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 quite um, you know. Uh, factual and out there, the, the people in this um, regime in Kiev are, are out and out um, self-declared, um, you know, um, uh, uh, subscribers to the the Nazi ideology. I mean, this food, this Shavoda party, the Freedom Party. Um, they've got several ministers in the Kiev. Uh, you know, Junta that uh, came into power in February with the CIA support. This is not a controversial accusation. They themselves declare their uh, profession of the um, Nazi collaborate, collaborationist uh, party in the past, uh, you know, in, in Ukraine. Um, so it's not... You know, I mean, some of the Western media say, oh, that's all just Soviet propaganda. Look, it's what they say themselves. The Shavuda Party, the Freedom Party, the Fatherland Party, um, various other um, very right-wing nationalist parties that are in power now in Kiev very much uh, adulate the collaborators of the Third Reich the Second World War, uh, and they collaborated in the program of mass extermination of, you know, Slav population, Jewish population, and various uh, various other people. Um, so to, to say that um, it's it, you know kind of Soviet propaganda or Russian propaganda is is really um, you know ludicrous because that's what those people themselves uh, very much profess. And they have done it in publicly, and and do it without any shame. Mm. Do you? Uh, you just talked about the Nazi kind of ideology uh, among this uh, gang that was shunted into power in Ukraine by the by the West, essentially. Um, I mean, do you see a same kind? Of, and you mentioned uh, undermention and <clears throat> with its corollary, corollary of uh, 
the master race type of thing, right? If you if you have undermension, you have to have a master race to look down on the undermension. So, um, do you see a similar ideology in Israel towards the Palestinians? Mm. Well, it, uh, that might be a bit risque, you know. No, no, no. It's 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 a very good um, point, and um, and and a, a, so opposite. I mean, um, yeah. To answer your question in short, yes, very much so. I mean, you know, look, all down through history, there, there's, you know, there, it's a question of power and subjugation where where the the powers that be or the, the um, you know, powers that want to conquest or subjugate will always try to dehumanize the other to, tr- to justify their project, their imperialist project, if you want to call it their, their their project of conquest. I mean, we've had this in Ireland, you know, where the Irish were projected as being somehow stupid and, you know, subhuman or, you know, not, not um, coming up to the mark of modernity and therefore justified conquest of, of Ireland. And, uh, you, you, you know, uh, I mean, you know, when the, the the Europeans were were conquering North America, they projected or presented the Native Americans as being somehow um, not worthy of their natural resources, that they weren't making the most of these natural resources, so they had to be pushed aside so that the, the more, more knowing people, the Europeans, would, would make of the natural resources and uh, it was justified in that way and so yes there's always this kind of um, you know um, project of, of dehumanizing other people um, as untermention I mean the Nazis weren't unique in that kind of way so and, and it's being played out today in Palestine I mean the um, Israeli regime uh, the Zionist regime in, in Tel Aviv is is just doing the very same, invoking the very same kind of um, pretexts and uh, justifications that have gone on down through history. And which, okay, now there is an irony, a very deep irony that, well, you know, because they were apparently subject to uh, the same kind of ideology under Nazi Germany. But I... I um, there's an interesting, there's a lot of twists in this uh, history, um, Niall and Joe. I mean, um, one of my dear colleagues and comrades is a, a guy called Ralph Schoenman. Um He's mm-hmm. the author of A Hidden History of Zionism. And Ralph is based over in Berkeley in California. He's been a, a, a long time, uh, you know, um, champion of, of justice and human rights and um, I hope he's listening into this this show but Ralph Schoenman did a great um, uh, piece of historical work and it was the hidden history of Zionism now Ralph um, dug up a lot of um, historical records that showed that the, the Zionists, the, the protagonists of Zionism in you know in the 30s 1930s actually collaborated with the Nazis in Germany because they wanted to create this so-called um, homeland in, in, in Palestine for 
that we come to know as Israel. And the Zion is actually, from Ralph Schoenman's historical um, discovery, um, the, the Nazis actually collaborated with these Zionists uh, to create this, this um, you know, dumping ground for, for European Jews. And, um, you know, so the idea that the, the Zionist regime, the Israeli regime, could be perpetrating genocide and Nazi-like uh, barbarism on the Palestinians is not actually a contradiction or it's not actually an, an anomaly because these the founders of that uh, state, the Zionist state, were, uh, according to Belshon Man and various historians, the, the, the Zionist founders were very much at ease with the Nazi uh, regime in Germany, even though that went on to, to kill millions of Jews and millions of other people. But in a very ex expedient way, they collaborated with this uh, Nazi regime to fulfill their kind of subjective, you know, fantasy about Israel. Uh, and um, so that they, that, that this regime would be doing that against the Palestinians today is, is not at all anomalous or contradictory. I mean, it's quite consistent, actually, with how they collaborated with the Nazi regime back in the 1930s and 40s. That is very, very interesting. Yeah, you, um, you mentioned, you referred to uh, this fantasy of a, of a, that the Zionists have of a, a Zionist uh, state or a, even the state of Israel. I mean, obviously the state of Israel is, is not a fantasy anymore. <clears throat> it's a reality. But um, one thing that occurred to me about the you know, the whole narrative behind that of the Jews needing to have a state of their own, it just never made sense to me, you know, in, in any kind of logical way. Uh, because if you look at what Judaism is, it's a minority religion. And there are many, there are many minority religions in the world. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there are people who adhere to that religion. Uh, and they live in different countries around the world. Uh, the Jews seem to translate that idea of them being members of a minority religion uh, into them uh, needing, uh, you know, by definition almost, uh, to have a state of their own. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just because there's many other examples of other minority religions uh, that, that don't have a state of their own, that live within a country uh, of their choosing or where they were born or whatever and people come and go to the religion and that's the way it works for everybody else but not for the Jews and the, just the idea that they would need a state of their own simply because they have their own religion uh, never made sense to me you know and I think that's kind of like what's at the basis of it all mm. well I mean there's there's a lot of you know I mean Jewish people and um, even people Jewish people within Israel as far as I can tell and from what I've Learned that they, they don't subscribe to this notion of a state of Israel. I mean, they would, you know, actually explicitly say that there should be just a Palestine, a land uh, where uh, Jews, Muslims, Christians, and non believers can coexist. I mean, the, the idea of an a state of Israel is really just a manufactured concept. I mean, you know, okay, apart from 
you know, vague biblical references, but there is no precedent to a state of Israel. In, in many ways, and in fact, you could say most ways, it's just a fabricated construct to, to suit kind of polit- very expedient political uh, interests or, or requirements. I mean, it's not, there's no historical precedent to um, Israel as a state. I mean, there's, there's far more historical precedent to Palestine as a state or Judea or, you know, a, a vague, uh, nebulous, regional kind of, um, um, you know, identity. I mean, it's the idea of Israel as a state is really quite a bizarre um construct and and it is i mean it was it was only because of the zionist movement which you know began at the end of um, the 19th century and then you know followed through at the beginning of the um 20th century and then you had the balfour declaration where the british um, foreign minister um balfour um uh, sir whatever he was called james balfour set up uh, well it gave them a kind of a uh, ideological, um, you know, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, began the, the idea of, or, or helped to promote the idea of, a, of, a, of an Israel, Israel, a state of Israel, uh, the Balfour Declaration in 1916 or 17 or so, and he was only responding to a lot of Zionist lobbying and um, financial inducements and and that's where the notion came about but prior to that you know really there was no historical uh, precedent to it it was it really just was a contrivance of um, political expedience and then after the second world war with lots of um, you know, shame and, uh, you know, uh, embarrassment about what happened. The, uh, the, the, the Jewish, the European Jew- Jewish population under Hitler, there was a lot of pressure then to, okay, um, you know, uh, let, let's kind of like give, give these Zionists their state of Israel. And, and so in 1948, the 14th of May, 1948, the UEM sort of like, you know, declared this uh, state of Israel. And it really, when you look into it, it's just, a, you know, an expedient contrivance. I mean, there's no real, um, you know, cultural, historical, um, you know, <clears throat> foundation to this the state that just came into being and and it came into being with at the cost of of hundreds of thousands of um, native people being displaced from their their homeland and you know okay palestinian people and we we equate the palestinian people with being mostly muslim but i mean there are probably a lot of christians and jewish people mixed up in that palestinian <clears throat> population of that territory <clears throat> that became displaced, dispossessed, uh, and actually murdered in massive numbers by the, uh, you know, the the at the inception of this Israeli state in 1948. And from there, for the last 66 years, it's just been like a cancer that continually, uh, you know, grows and, and multiplies and 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 displaces the Palestinian people and. You know we have to we have to look at the the foundations of this 
state and and to recognise that it was an injustice that was done against the native people of Palestine, whether they be Jew, Christian or Muslim, it was a it was a violation of the natural justice or um, you know um, cultural territorial norms of the day in that region, Palestine, and it's continuing to this day. So when we see people being massacred in Gaza today and in the West Bank, it's not just Gaza, but in the West Bank as well, that's just a continuation of this, this, uh, you know, this project of colonialism that the Western governments, the British in particular, and the Americans have, have totally fueled and, and um, you know, uh, perpetuated to this to this day. Uh, yeah, yeah. It strikes it strikes me that there is something particularly uh, something particular about the the Zionists and the people who uh, lobbied for the creation of the Zionists of, of the state of Israel and you know arrived there and you know organized the the creation essentially the immigration and the creation of the state of Israel. There's something different about them in the sense that. Uh, you know they haven't been able to live peaceably with, uh, as supposedly was their original intent, to live peaceably with the local population in some form or other. You know, they. Uh, I mean, if you look at Lebanon, for example, I mean Lebanon was kind of uh, at that time was under the same, and uh, even Syria and Jordan and stuff were under the same British mandate. And those countries were created after the uh, in, in the aftermath of the Second World War uh, or the First World War, and. Um, I mean, even internally to Lebanon, leaving aside Israel as a kind of like a, a thorn in the side of the, of the Lebanese Muslims, uh, to some extent, or certainly to a much better extent than in Israel-Palestine, uh, Lebanon has functioned um, relatively well with a multi-religious kind of, uh, society, multi-ethnic even society, um, compared to Israel. So, I mean, I, would, I tend to put that down to the ideology behind the creation of uh, the state of Israel, where the people behind it and who have led it since then never intended to allow uh, the local population to, to live there peaceably. They wanted uh, all of the land for themselves. And I mean, because what other explanation is there? Because people do ultimately, uh, you know... They ultimately integrate. Ultimately integrate and get on with life and just live peaceably. And that's, that has happened around the world in many different places that that were colonized, etc., but not in Israel. Mm. I mean, mm. do you know what I'm yeah. saying? <clears throat> um, mm. Oh, very much so. Um, Joe, well, I mean, um, I mean, oof, like we're, we're, we're kind of thinking and talking off the tops of our head here. Yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, whenever you, you've got a, a people that are in, um, placed in, trans, trans, um, transplanted into a region to fulfil a kind of a, you know, a function to uphold power and um, that, that, that inevitable um, or the special people, and um, I mean, there's there's an analogy with uh, I think Ireland and and uh, Palestine. I mean, you know, the the British colonised Ireland by you know transplanting 
plantations. They, they brought huge numbers of people over from Britain and, and they totally uh, deformed the demographics of Ireland um, to, to plant a pro-British population, especially in the north of Ireland, that would give them a mandate, give them a, a, a reason to be, a raison d'etre, to, to be in Ireland. And over generations, people get inculcated with that sense of privilege, with that sense of exceptionalism, superiority, supremacy. And it's very hard then to, to reverse that. Once that idea gets inculcated in people, mm-hmm. um, they, 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 you know, they begin, it becomes internalized and normalized in their thinking. And, you know, and, and I, I've grown up with that in, in, in the north of Ireland. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly dissipated over the years. But it's, it's amazing the, the, the similarity with the diehard unionist politicians and uh, union, loyalist population in the north of Ireland. It's very similar. Their, their way of thinking with the, the likes of the Israelis, the, the, the diehard Zionists, they see the other as being, you know, subhuman, not being worth, they're not equal. They, it's the dominant population is justified to do anything they want in the name of whatever they declare. You know, if they want to declare self-defense or protection of their very um, conceited notion of, you know, democracy or whatever, they can do whatever they want and they will be able to inflict the, any kind of violence, um, any kind of repression on, on the other because they're inculcated with a very, um, you, you know, supremacist notion about themselves to fulfill the imperialist project. And the British did it with the, um, the unionist population mm-hmm. in, in Ireland. And, and I think the, the, the Israeli, the, the Zionist um, uh, dominant, uh, you know, political faction or whatever in, in, in Israel do that because they, they have been bankrolled uh, and, and indulged over decades by, in particular, the, the American government, but mm-hmm. also the Europeans, but primarily the American government. Now, what, why the American government would do that is, well, it's all to do with, you know, their then hegemonic, uh, hegemonic um, you know, ambitions. They want to have a place in the Middle East that they can have a base, that they can project power from, that they can, you know, use to divide and rule Arab nations with. And um, it gives them a wedge uh, you know, to push in there into a vital part of the world, the oil-rich Middle East. And, and Israel, the state of Israel, has been a, you know, a, just a garrison, an imperialist garrison for the, the, the Americans and, and their, you know, um, allies, the, the British and the rest of the Europeans. But so the Israelis have, have been... A, totally indulged by this imperialist, um, you know, power kind of uh, structure. And, and, and they have, over the decades, in my view, have, have become inculcated with this sense of, you know, absolute conceit and arrogance as to what they can do in, in, in that part of the world where if they want to massacre, um, 
Palestinians, you know, every day of the week, uh, they, they, they can do so because, you know, they've been so indulged and inculcated and they, they don't even, I think they, they don't even see, they, they've, they've lost any, you know, kind of way of, you know, like seeing what they're doing. They're so inculcated with their own sense of, you know, like this conceited, um, you know, indulgent kind of like view of themselves and what they are because of the decades of, you know, pandering by their sponsors, by their imperial sponsors. They, 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 com- they become completely impervious to any kind of, you know, objective rationale, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we watched um, an Al Jazeera report recently that was, it was snuck out from Gaza. It was horrifying. It, it, had, it was filmed in the aftermath of the bombing of the district of... Do you remember the name, Joe? Uh, I can't remember the name. Shereja or something? Yeah, something like that. Somewhere in Gaza. North of Gaza. Oh, my God. So it, the bombs, I mean, they were coming down still as the guy was going around filming. Uh, anyway, it was, it was aired, and there were a few times where they'd hold a microphone up to some of the people fleeing the bombing, and... All of them said, first and foremost, they were cursing the Arab states. They didn't mention Israel. Mm. I, I was struck by that. You know, they, they weren't like, to hell with you, Israel. They were like, to hell with you. Mm. Where are all the Arab leaders? What are they doing? You, you, you've got some pretty close of experience of how the other Arab states view this conflict. What are they doing? Well, I mean, uh, it, it is, it's just disgraceful, the, the lack of, uh, uh, you know, action by the, the so-called, you know, Arab leaders. And, um, and, but in a way, it's not surprising. I mean, they are all just satraps and um, proxies of the West. I mean, they're all just, you know, Western imperialist uh, placemen. Um, Egypt, um, the Persian Gulf, Saudi Arabia, you know, the Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, um, you know, they're, they're all just, um, you know, place, place people of, of the Western imperialist hegemony. Um, so, you know, that they don't um, protest or um, do anything practical for the Palestinian people um, and they haven't done for for decades. I mean, they've just been sitting idly by as this genocide has been happening in slow motion. I mean, it, it's not at all surprising because they are just, you know, um, quislings of the Western imperialist hegemony. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and that's why they are... Um, you know that's why there is repression in these countries. I mean, you know, the you know the the, the people on the streets, the people in the, the these hovels of homes, like are, are not happy with their rulers, but they have never really enjoyed democracy or been able to attain democracy because the Western governments, in particular Washington, makes sure that these Arab elites um, repress any call or movement towards democracy. So it's not at all, um, 
surprising that whenever the, the people of Palestine are being slaughtered in their hundreds, and, and let's say it, Joe and Neil, I mean, this is genocide. This, you can't, you can't, this is not um, hyperbole to say that it's genocide. I mean, it is legally, factually, you can define it as genocide. And yet, with all this daily slaughter, what are the Arab countries doing? They're doing nothing. Absolutely yeah. nothing. And, yeah. and that's a reflection of because they are um, not representative of the Arab people, but they are just um, satraps. They are just, um, uh, you know, minions of the the Western hegemonic um, arrangement, the, 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 the power structure in the Middle East. So, they're not going to. They're not going to make any protest or, um, you know, help any kind of resistance because they're part, very much, very, very much part and parcel of the entire problem. Indeed. Now, a quick aside: Do you think Morsi, the former president of Egypt, was ousted because he was possibly not going to be playing ball? Hmm. I think that's a that's a fair point. Um, um, I mean, look, I, I I wasn't too enamoured with Mohammed um, Morsi. I mean, I, I, his um, his kind of Islamist um, affiliations and um, you know um, proclivities were 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 certainly not progressive. Uh, and, and some of his some of his policies or statements were, were reprehensible. In my view, but um, I do think that the Morsi—he was an elected president as, as as much as you could get an elected um, process in Egypt after 30 years of Western-backed puppet of Mubarak. Um, Morsi was elected. He, you know, as far as we can tell, he was elected by a legitimate process, and. His he was deposed, um, but his deposition. I mean, you, you have to if if you want to have some standards. I mean, I think you have to um, object to that. I mean that you know this guy was was um, it was a coup d'état. He was he was kicked out of his elected government, his elected seat by um, the military uh, by um, Al Sisi, the the now. Um, uh, so-called president of Egypt, which the West is very seems to be very happy with or has come to terms with, and one could say that um, Morsi, Mohammed Morsi, um, uh, while he had some unsavoury uh, proclivities towards the um, Muslim Brotherhood and you know Islamism that was you know quite objectionable. I mean. Um, nevertheless, he was he was elected, kicked out, and now who's, which is should be um, you know that should be held to account or should be um, you know investigated or uh, queried at, at the very least, um, but it's not. And then he was kicked out by the the, the military um, people of um, Al Sisi. Um, so. Um, Okay. Yeah, I only ask because I've been wondering what 
might not have happened, i.e. would this operation in Gaza have been launched if Israel wasn't so sure they had a reliable partner blockading the southern end of the Gaza Strip. But this just, I don't think it would have changed much. I mean, Morsi himself would have been inviting all kinds of trouble on his head if he had been cooperative with refugees fleeing Gaza, for example, because that would be an obvious sign to the world that somebody is doing something about it. Well, I think, um, you know, just to try to um, build on what you're saying there, um, Joe, like I think, yes, like I think Al-Sisi is is very, is definitely much more um, in line with the American-Israeli policy and, and therefore would be preferable from their point of view than Morsi. Um, you know, I mean, Al Sisi has blocked off the uh, Al Rafa the uh, Rafa crossing. Uh, has you know, in effect, facilitated the uh, Israeli onslaught on Gaza. And Morsi may not have been. I would I would guess he wouldn't have been quite so um, conducive to. Um, this this horrible um, onslaught, this genocide on Gaza, um, because of his um, is is uh, yeah, his connection well, with the Muslim Brotherhood, yeah. with uh, Hamas. Um, oh, so, um, I mean, so like you know, oh, it's it's a it's a big one. But I mean, like, the the thing is that Morsi. Seemed, you know, he was elected. As far as we can, you know, um, establish, it was a it was a, a legitimate election. Now we we could go into various nuances about that. Um, the the people that didn't turn out for his election and different things. But you know, if we accept certain standards, the guy was elected. He had a, a mandate. To become president. Now, the thing is that he was he was he was kicked out. It was a it was a coup d'état, and the American government and the British uh, and the Europe the other Europeans have have just turned a blind eye to that, and that points up their own, um, you know, um, how would you say their own. Uh, culpability in this that they you know they have they have just relented and gone along acquiesced to what is a coup d'etat and Morsi I mean where is he I mean he, he was taken away like a year ago or more and nobody has heard any more about him and it's quite bizarre that an elected leader is just kind of um you know disposed of yeah. in such a bizarre kind of way and 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 the the usurpers of his office, Al Sisi, this guy, um, whatever he's called, um, Abdul Fattah Al Sisi. I mean, you know, he's just suddenly given the imprimatur of Washington and the European governments. But you know, where's his mandate? He just kicked the elected president out of office. I mean, that really, you know, illustrates in such a graphic way, and it's so graphic, and it's. So um, underreported or it's unremarked on, which is really 
remarkable that this can happen and yet um, the Western media, the Western governments just sort of like, you know, get along with it. You know, they yeah. don't, um, it's, it's not an issue, but it should be, you know, huge controversy that an elected president, you mightn't like his particular politics, and I'm not into his Muslim Brotherhood kind of affiliations, but that's besides the point. I mean, this guy was elected, and yet suddenly he's kicked out of office, and he's secretly, you know, uh, you know, yeah, put somewhere that we don't even we haven't even heard of this guy, and then this this kind of like self-appointed president, this military guy, is now accepted all around the world, or at least in the Western world. Now yeah. that points up huge, you know, um, anomaly to say the least about Western standards. But as you were saying, at your sort of your your point, I mean. This this guy, this Al Sisi guy, he very much suits the Western agenda of uh, accommodating to Israel, the Zionist regime, and accommodating to Western uh, American, in particular, um, geopolitical, um, you know, interests across the region. Yeah, <sighs> Egypt is. I mean, pe- people are being sentenced to death by the hundreds, apparently. At the same time, I read about a puff piece about Morsi in the Guardian newspaper, which celebrates the fact that he had some no-car no day in Cairo, mm-hmm. where, he, where he went out with a few hundred of his followers around the city on a bicycle. You mean Sisi? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but <laughs> look at him. He's so good. He cares for the environment. I was like, they just glossed over the fact that people are being shot. You know, and the, uh, journalists even in Egypt uh-huh. for conspiring against the regime, and it's it's so totalitarian. Yeah. And, anyway, to to get back to something, I want to get back to something you wrote recently, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, that really struck me as so obvious. How did I not think about it? Maybe I, maybe others have, and I was just the last one to figure it out. You you've suggested that the reason why Israel, uh, I think they've done it again today or a couple of days ago, is periodically declaring, quote-unquote, humanitarian ceasefires is so that they can reload and resupply and teases the Gazans out of their homes because they have to go and find where their dead cousin is. And therefore, they're in the open and they're an easier target. Yeah. That is just horrific, but it makes so much sense when you think about the way these people think about it. Yeah. Well, I didn't... um I certainly, I didn't write that with any kind of ease or, you know, it's 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 a horrible way to to look at things, you know. And <clears throat> but that's you know when you get down to the barbaric nature of um, totalitarian violence, that's the way I think these people think. Yeah, you know, they they're continually just. Uh, Trying to improve or make more efficient their their killing machine, and um, when you look at the evidence, that's that's certainly what what suggests that's happening. I mean, you know these these truces and ceasefires that they're calling. I mean, they're they're really they're they're nonsensical, and they're they're so you know. I think it's quite obvious that it's just a public relations maneuver. You know that oh, you know we call us some humanitarian ceasefire it looks good and of course the way the 
certified Western media report it, it does look kind of good, you know, that, oh, they will just report it on face value. Yes, it's a humanitarian ceasefire. Um, but, I mean, w- when you look at the, the cloaks, uh, um, the sequel, or you know, the sequence of events to that, it, it can only be that they are the the Israeli regime are, are just, you know, well, partly um, buying a bit of PR uh, kudos in, in calling these so-called truces, um, you know, but they are just very expediently using them as opportunities to to um uh refresh the the killing machine and um you know there was there was a lot of incidents that that have, would tend to sh- to show that i mean it, um during the week there there was the uh, horrible um massacre in Sujia Market um, and this followed just you know an hour or so after one of these truces, these humanitarian truces that was declared by the Tel Aviv regime and um, you know naturally people go to these places to stock up to try to get a few basic um, human needs uh, food, water and whatever and then there was this horrible attack on that to JL Market, there was at least three uh, major um, strikes on that uh, vicinity, that market, and um, resulted in in, multi- in mass murder, like at least 15 people, if not more. Now, I mean, how many times do we give the benefit of the doubt to this regime? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that was just an accident. I, I, I think, you know, we've got to be very... Um, um, a lot more accusatory and just say, look, this is just um, out and out a premeditated um, clinical murder and, and you know, a, a, a way to murder more people. I mean, absolutely. Stop. I think we should stop indulging this horrible regime that they say that, you know, when they strike UEN schools and hospitals, oh, well, there's fire coming from the, the vicinity, we 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 um, responded with fire, or there was um, we believe there's munitions being held, uh, being stored secretly in this hospital. I mean, you know, I mean, to hell with your uh, your um, this this really regimes, um, you know, um, pretexts and what they say. I mean, I think you know that's that's what kind of totally frustrates me and, you know, uh, infuriates me, and I'm sure a lot of ordinary people out there, is that you know, we should stop indulging this horrible, you know, genocidal regime and its horrible, cynical pretexts and excuses. I mean, what they get away with is just, you know, really so despicable. And, and what's really despicable is the way the Western media, like the BBC and CNN and all these other media, it, it totally indulge this regime in what they do, the, the horrible crimes that they carry out and the apologetics that they use or invoke to um, whitewash what they're doing. I mean, look, 
it's just mass murder. That's it. It's genocide. It's mass murder. I'm not going to indulge in your apologetics, your excuses, your pretexts. It's just mass murder. And, you know, don't give me, I'm sorry to say this now, but don't give me your bullshit. Don't give me your, you know, lame, you know, sordid excuses. It's mass murder. It's genocide. Uh, it can't well, be said enough. Very well for you. Very well said. I mean, it's pretty obvious that that's the case because, um, I mean, you've cited some examples, you know, the UN schools, the UN itself said that it told the Israelis 17 times in their first attack on a UN shelter, it told the, uh, the Israelis 17 times the location of the UN school shelter, and then the Israelis bombed it. Now, that sounds a lot like the Israelis, if they needed it, they used the UN information of where the school was to bomb it, right? I mean, that can't be excused. I mean, like you just said, how, how often are you going to give them the benefit of the doubt before you realize that they're just they're deliberately targeting uh, civilians here? So, um, but that brings up the question. Do, do you know, sorry to cut in on you there, Joe, but I mean, I was just having a, a little um, imaginary um you know, thought the other day, you know, when I saw the BBC getting on um, some spokesperson for the um, Israeli regime and they were giving him a total free reign to just spin the propaganda, you know. And I was just thinking, like, can you imagine during the Warsaw ghetto crackdown by, um, you know, the Third Reich, the Nazi uh, war machine on, on the the you know the the Warsaw Ghetto I think it was in 1943 April May 1943. Mm-hmm. Now could you imagine if the BBC got on Joseph Ge- Goebbels, you know, and mm-hmm. just say, okay, um, Herr Goebbels, so um, what what do you say about this? And there'd be this you know no doubt very eloquent and um, articulate spiel about what they're doing, you know, and and that's. That's just what the BBC are doing. They're just giving, a, you know, complete carte blanche and free reign to um, a genocidal regime, you know, a horrible criminal regime that, that totally violates every international norm and, you know, legal precept and, and you know, to mass murder innocent people. And they they just indulge them and they give them total free reign to spout all their lies and you know um, twisted fabrications and with without a challenge hardly a challenge they they are never really challenged and so now you know that's what they're doing right now but I mean my imaginary uh, kind of like um, sort of a digression is that. I'm just trying to put it in perspective. I mean, people might think, well, that, that's, that would be really hard to, to conceive. Like if, if Joseph Goebbels was allowed on BBC during 1943 to justify and um, whitewash what they were doing in um, Warsaw, Greto 1943 or, you know, in, in the Ukraine in 1943 also where they were carrying out mass murder. If, if, if such a character was allowed on BBC to spout their propaganda, it would be, it would seem, you know, that would be just, you know, completely unbelievable. But yet, that's, that is what's happening, you know. 
Mm, absolutely. I mean, the problem with that is is that uh, Goebbels at the time, and he probably was doing what you described, not to the BBC, but to German media at the time, Goebbels didn't realise at the time, or didn't think of himself at the time, as a Goebbels. So the Israeli spokesman today doesn't think of himself as a Goebbels. But history shows that these people, that's what they are. But it's only in, in retrospect that we look back and we say this person was a, was a war criminal and a, a genocidal maniac. I mean, but just to follow on what I was saying in the same vein, I mean, the Israelis are killing Palestinians quite clearly. I mean, you don't need to have a lot of brain cells firing to realize that they're clearly targeting uh, civilians, women, children, everybody. And they killed, you know, 16, 1700 at this stage. Uh, most of them civilians. In fact, I would just call all of them civilians yeah. because in, in Gaza, as a, as a cage, essentially, you know, just shooting, bombing people. It's, there is no Gaza military. No, it's just mass, mass murders, as you say, Finian. So, but the question is, what's the point? Do they have a point? Or is it just that they enjoy killing civilians? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the Zionists, um, you know, planners would, would you know, it, it's well documented. They... <clears throat> they see their, um, you know, um, territorial objective as to um, clear the whole territory um, from the Nile to the Euphrates. I mean, that's, you know, the founding ideologues of, of um, Zionism, we um, Theodore um, Herschel, uh, various people like that, um, you know, they that's how they... Um, outline their their um, final solution, to, to, so to speak, or to coin a phrase ironically. But that's mm-hmm. that's what they they want. They want the, the the whole territory from the Nile to the Euphrates, taking in all that swathe of territory, Iraq, uh, Syria, um, as, as their that's their front. That's their Outer limits of their frontier, and it's, it's well documented. I mean, better people, much better people than me, have have written lots on that. Um, you know the, um, you know that's that's the Zionist ideology, and you know the thing is that you know this is luckily for them, or fortunate for for the Zionists, is it very much is is you know in sync with. You know, Western and Washington, in particular, the American uh, imperialist, um, you know, um, you know, hegemonic interests. I mean, that's that's why it's such a powerful um, project because it, it it very neatly ties in with the um, you know the most powerful military state in the world and the center of capitalism. Uh, you know, America, America, Washington, you know, underpins the whole capitalist uh, West and their <clears throat> uh, needs of, um, you know, uh, you know, kind of um, imposing their <clears throat> political power and um, interests over the vital oil, which at least is in sync with how these uh, Zionist you know, these Zionist dreamers think, and um, it, that's why it's it's such a I think such a difficult 
um, problem to unravel and to eradicate because we're not just talking about, you know, crazy um, Jewish fanatics that have a sort of a biblical dream to fulfill. I mean, it's, it's, it's very much integrated with the whole um, Western imperialist division of the world and in particular Washington's division of the world. And until we address that, you know, the, the whole capitalist imperialist um, division and, you know, subjugation of the world and, you know, hegemony, I think you know the 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 middle, the Palestinian problem will not be properly addressed because it's integrated into how Washington sees its hegemonic um, desire on the world being you know implemented. Yeah, it's also yeah. it's also intertwined. It's hard mm. to unravel one from the other. You mentioned in passing that uh, one objective of these hegemonic interests is to destabilize Russia. Now, you've also written explicitly about the blatant politicization of the shooting down or blowing up, whichever, of MH17 in Ukraine. Uh, it's been incredible how they have blamed this on Putin. It's entirely predictable. I wonder if you could, yeah, would you tell us about that. I mean, for example, there was uh, this whole thing about the black boxes. Have, have you heard anything about the flight recorders? They made a big show of saying that the rebels in the east of Ukraine had were holding the boxes or they lost them. But then they were handed over and the Malaysian government tanked the rebels. And then it ends up in the hands of the British, and since then, what? Yeah. Um, well, um, I think it's, uh, um, one interesting um, new, uh, a little bit of news, and Joe and Neil, is that um, there was a, there was an interesting article on Global Research, well, published by Global Research there a few days ago. A German pilot, um, I just can't find his name now. Um, I'm just, yeah, this guy, uh, Peter Hesenko, Peter Hesenko, a German pilot, aviation expert. He he wrote um, about the downing of the Malaysian airliner MH17, and his article was published on Global Research, as I said. Um, he was looking at a couple of photographs of the remains of the aircraft as it as it came to rest in um, the east, east Ukraine fields near Donetsk, and um, very very cogently the the guy pointed out photographs, um, you know, provided them presented them uh, for the reader to to you know assess them uh, for themselves, and um, he was pointing out that the the cockpit of the aeroplane showed very um, well I mean it was very cogent very believable very credible that the the the, cock, the cockpit of the airliner was strafed with what looked like to be um, heavy machine gun fire did you see mm -hmm. that? yes yes we've, we've read his analysis yeah 
Okay. Um, go on. And so, I mean, I think well, let's, you know, so there, there seems to be some kind of, it's not, uh, the, the, the whole incident is very suspicious. Uh, it very much points to sabotage, perhaps not um, an anti-aircraft missile, uh, maybe uh, you know the strafing of the airliner industry. The Russian Defense Ministry presented some very credible information there last week, where they showed uh, uh, from a variety of satellite, um, you know, and also air traffic control, um, you know, data uh, which could be verified, unlike the American um, information that was supposed to be. Um, be, that was supposed to be the predicate for their accusations. But the Russian uh, defense ministry presented their information, and, and they were um, providing information that showed that there was at least one um, military aircraft in the vicinity of this airliner. Now, that would tally with what the German pilot was saying, that the, the airliner... The, the cockpit showed the um, evidence of, you know, being attacked by heavy machine gun fire, obviously from a, a, a military aircraft. Um, the Russians, they presented information. They didn't say if the military aircraft attacked the civilian airliner, but their information showed that a um, military fighter jet was very close to the airliner, you know, three kilometers from the airliner within shooting range. And, and they were just leaving it at that saying, well, you know, who, who, what was that empty, what was that uh, military fighter jet doing in that flight path, you know, very irregularly with a civilian aircraft. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, the West and, and, Washington in particular has presented no information. No. No credible information to to um, support whatever they're saying. I mean, they're trying to imply that Russia or the independent militia in eastern Ukraine who are aligned, who, you know, they certainly are aligned with Russia and that they're Russian people. Uh, the, but that doesn't mean to say this, Moscow is actually supporting them materially, but they're, if you can say, okay, pro-Russian or Russian aligned. But so Washington is, is claiming that it's these people and, it, and by extension that it's Moscow that shot down this civilian airliner. But there is no, no information, no evidence to support that whatsoever. Only the assertion of it and the claim that we have got evidence. But when the Americans are actually challenged, okay, well, where is your evidence? They're, they're not presenting it. And whatever they have presented so far is, is really, you know, like toilet paper value. It's got, there's no credibility in the, their information. Like they, their satellite images were low resolution and didn't even, you know, seem to, you know, there was nothing that could you could actually say, yeah, that was that location at that time. So Russians have got the information, verifiable information, 
that is all consistent with um, various parts of the jigsaw puzzle, which would point to that it was it was the Kiev regime people that um, were involved in taking down this airliner, and and the West are complicit in you know giving that political um, cover. Uh, and, and there's a lot of good political reasons or motives why they would do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 such a gift for the Kiev regime and for Washington with its effort to drive up sanctions. I mean, as you've written, you know, Europe is kind of like, oh, I'm not sure we want to take these sanctions any further. Yeah. MH17 happens and voila, it's yeah. been a complete gift for them. Um, yeah, Obama called it a wake-up call like yeah. after that. Uh, I think it was about two days after, or maybe even actually the day after 17th of July, that you know horrible um, incident of the airliner coming down and 298 people being killed. Obama the next day said, "This is a wake-up call for Europe." Now you know it's it's all too neatly choreographed. Yeah. I mean. That's what, you know, sometimes these people think they're very clever, but, you know, very often they're not clever because they, they, they rush ahead with their choreography and it just, that in itself incriminates, you know, the way yeah. that everything falls into place very neatly. It's all very, um, you know, punctual, you know, one step after another. And that in itself whether you've got, you know, the actual evidence, but the Russians have got good evidence about this air, uh, and, uh, this military aircraft and, and other things in the area. And, the, the, you know, they've got a lot of satellite information that implicates. But, I mean, with, without going into that even, if you just look at the way the, 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 the West, Washington in particular, and its little menu on the British government, have reacted to that, that horrible disaster it's it's that in itself is incriminating because they they have just kind of they're just following a script you know yeah indeed and we can just hope that enough other governments around the world can see that that remains to be seen finian thank you so much for coming on today it's been a pleasure mm. uh, Thank you. We're going to wrap it up here. Uh, Finian Cunningham's articles, he writes regularly. You can find them on strategicculture.org, on nsnbc.me, and on Press TV. Yep. Thanks a million for being with us, Finian. It's been, it's been great, and uh, more power to you. Keep, yeah. keep, keep going, you know, because it needs to be done. It needs to be said. A real journalist. Do, have you got a book, Finian, lined up? Oh, I haven't got time to or no, no. <laughs> do that yet. I'm, you know, I'm just kind of keeping my head above water with just the news events. I was, I was trying to write a book about Bahrain and the whole um, regional turmoil there a few years back, but uh, that's kind of put on the back burner, you know, because no, just uh, there's so much going on. I just exactly. can't get the time to sit down for three months and write. Yeah, no, yeah, we know uh, that but one. <laughs> how come I'm not worried about that? Maybe, no. well, maybe keep like a good wine, it'll cure, you know. Yeah, exactly. All right, Finny, we're going to let you go. 
Thanks a million. Thanks again for, for being on. Uh, it's been very informative. Okay. Okay, guys. All the best to you. Enjoy your Sunday. Okay, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Um, yeah. Was uh, we're sorry about the uh, quality of the phone of the of the line there, not the phone call. The Skype connection, uh, Skype is never. Um, well, it's all about your connection speed. Our our um, connection is is pretty good here, but uh, it just depends on who we're calling, uh, whether or not they've got a, a decent enough connection to, to keep it going. But we hope that most of it was uh, intelligible. Um, yeah, just on just to expand a bit on the. Uh, I don't know, MH17. Um, there's a few little details in terms of what uh, what actually happened to the plane. I mean, Finn was talking about them in there. That I mean, most people, maybe a lot of people listening, have seen the the pieces of the aircraft that have been most analysed, which show what appear to be uh, bullet holes, like large caliber bullet holes, um, both uh, coming in and out of. What they what apparently has been identified as a part of the cockpit. So you have holes that are many holes that are quite relatively small, uh, showing the metal bent outwards, and also uh, ones that are more consistent with <clears throat> something hitting it and going in. Um, so that does argue for something uh, having kind of strafed the cockpit of of the plane. Um, just in terms of our analysis of it and what we think went on, obviously this was immediately, as Finian was saying, this was immediately blamed on Russia. It was set up in advance. Therefore, the people who have their narrative and their story and their accusation ready to go the moment the plane comes down, you look at those people as likely uh, culprits or likely uh, um, accomplices, let's say, uh, in, in, the, in the attack, in, in the downing of MH17. So, in that scenario, our theory about it was ties in with the kind of evidence that is available is that um, there was a plane supposedly seen, uh, a Ukrainian or an Su-25. Uh, I mean, the rebels don't have these planes. Russia has them, uh, but uh, the uh, Ukrainian government has them. But also that kind of a plane, an older kind of fighter jet from the kind of Soviet era, uh, wouldn't be too hard to come by by anybody with uh, enough resources and power uh, you know and so pointing at pointing at the Ukrainian government, the, the Kiev regime that was shunted into power uh, isn't necessarily what's going on here it could have been, there can be another kind of uh, element yeah. a black deep cover kind of uh, operation you, you, Ukraine know. doesn't really have a government. Exactly. That's it's an it's open, wide open, mafioso territory. Yeah, my, come my, in, come exactly, out, exactly. make deals. So my, <laughs> that's my problem is, is when people, all the kind of uh, the alternative media that are um, analyzing the situation and are starting from the right basis, that obviously it wasn't Russia, it wasn't Russian-sponsored uh, rebels or anything like that. It was more likely to be the other side, the West and its puppet regime in, in Kiev. Uh, Good, that's on the right track. But then to blame Kiev deliberately or consciously having a, a part in this or an active role in this is a bit kind of unbelievable in the sense that these people have only just appeared 
in government. You know, the actual, like, Yatsen Yuk, the Prime Minister, and Turkey knows the former president, <laughs> sorry, Turkey knows the former pre- uh, president, and now the new president, Poroshenko. I mean, those guys are all just puppets type of thing, and they're just very recently, they're newbies, they're, they're wet behind the ears type of thing, to suggest that they had some part in this, and their histories are f- fairly well known. They're not exactly, you know, high-level international diplomats. They're kind of nobodies, essentially, you know, from from Ukraine. So, to me, it's to, uh, if you're going to go with uh, there being a, a fighter jet involved in the shooting down of the plane, I would suggest that it's something along the lines of the uh, the kind of organizations or operations or groups that um, are kind of, you know, very murky in the background, black operations that are above and beyond any kind of oversight of kind of conventional overt government. For example, on 9-11, um, at the, when Flight 93 was obviously shot down uh, rather than steered into the ground by struggling passengers shouting, let's roll, uh, fighting with the terrorists in the cockpit and then running it into the ground. The part, uh, obviously, that narrative is just a fairy story. It's you know it's a Hollywood movie version of it. The reality of it is seems to be that it was shot down because there was a, a white jet seen in the area at the time. And even, I think it was um, Donald Rumsfeld uh, who let slip that it was shot down. Uh, in an interview, I think it was Rumsfeld or Cheney, one or the other. Yeah. But they let it slip that we shot. Oh, we didn't shoot. I mean, not, not shot down. Uh, crashed in Pennsylvania. Uh, so, and I mean, there's even a plausible narrative for that shooting down on Flight 93, which was that, uh, according to like an official narrative uh, that, that makes sense that, that they could have admitted to, which was that when a plane has been hijacked and they can't do anything about it uh, to save uh, the potential uh, kind of massive casualties on the ground, if it's flown into some building or into a, into a populated area, they would shoot it down over a, uh, at an unpopulated area. So they could have even said that, but they wanted to go with the Hollywood kind of like let's roll you know, Heroes, Flight 93, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, the point is, there was a jet in the area, a white jet, an unmarked jet, essentially. So it's suggestive of there being uh, groups or factions of certain intel agencies or something, whatever you want to call it. We have no names for these kind of things. The secret government, the shadow government, having access to lots of uh, military equipment, and including uh, uh, aircraft. Uh, and that they... Uh, being in some way involved in 9-11 went and shot this down because they didn't want to have it officially recorded anywhere by any official Air Force uh, uh, plane or pilot being involved in it. So somebody else, unknown, no name, yeah. white plane, shot it down. So that's, for me, that's the corollary here between uh, that with, with, with Ukraine in that this jet was seen, and I don't think it was ordered up by Poroshenko no. into the sky to shoot down that plane. Someone else did it. You don't rely on these people to get things done. No, exactly. There's no, there's two, what, so there's well, something that could go wrong if you want to fire a missile up at it. Yeah. But if you know that plane's coming down, yeah. for example, you put a bomb in it. Exactly, you should put a bomb in it. So there's evidence that, um, you know, the plane came apart in the air because a lot of the passengers, or at least a certain number of the passengers, were found with no clothes on them. Um, this is usually evidence in plane crashes at high altitude or plane, you know, disasters where they uh, crash um, that the plane came apart at a high altitude uh, and people fell out of the plane. 
and the clothes were kind of ripped off them by the, the kind of the fall by the wind, etc. So um, as opposed to a plane crashing into the ground intact, people don't get their clothes ripped off. They found burned, etc., but they don't find naked bodies, uh, as in unburned or anything. So they found people at the crash site without clothes on them. So yes, the plane broke up in midair. Um, and they also have this evidence of it being strafed with a machine gun, you know, mounted on a on this aircraft that was seen in the area. So um, that could have been as a, pos- as a, as a possible or maybe plausible scenario. Uh, the aircraft was there, the fighter jet was there to create the impression of a kind of a shrapnel effect on the body mm-hmm. of the plane, mm-hmm. which they could then blame on, you know, um, a book missile because it fragments yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. a few hundred yards from the plane, creates that kind of damage. So they're interested in making sure, at least covering their asses a little bit, that when the plane falls to the ground, any investigation can plausibly be explained by yeah. the official narrative that they have prepared for it beforehand. But um, in terms of actually making sure it goes down and not leaving any trace, um, or leaving as little trace as possible, uh, you put a bomb on the plane yeah. that no one knows about. So no missile was fired. You don't actually have to, you know, you don't have to, um, you know, deal with evidence that anybody's seeing that kind of a, or hearing that kind of an explosion or whatever, you know. Yeah. Um, I find that plausible because I think the whole movement of Kiev, well, Ukrainian forces, they, we know now that the Russians have shown that they have boop systems and that they were moving them. The Russians could actually say, look, they were moved from this place in Donetsk. Here it is traveling down the road, July 16th, and voila, it's in, it's in the area on the day itself. That would suggest to me that that was another level, uh, layer of the decoy mm-hmm. that went into. And when you're at that level of operation where you can ensure, plan it well in advance, plan it well enough to do that, that's uh, there's people with a lot of experience, and Kiev doesn't have experience no. in doing this kind of thing. Absolutely not, you know. Um, I mean, that's just a, I don't know enough about ballistics and stuff to explain this cockpit, uh, this piece of cockpit that shows kind of like it shows a lot of uh, exit, uh, apparently exit uh, holes, but some apparent entry holes as well. So um, that would be consistent if. It was entry and exit consistent with the cockpit itself being shot with a uh, machine gun essentially mounted on a, on a fighter jet, maybe even killing the pilots so that that's it. The pilots are, are dead. They can't radio anything and the cockpit's locked. So um, the plane starts to kind of go out of control and at that point, sometime afterwards, shortly afterwards, you detonate a bomb. It's all nice and neat, you know, um, yeah. because, you know, it, it, it's... It's, unless you have control of the radio communications, and they obviously did have some control of the radio communications with Kiev, with the uh, air traffic control in Kiev, where someone in air traffic control in Kiev told the plane to fly lower and apparently on a, on a slightly different course over Donetsk and Luhansk, so that it would crash in that area. Now, to what extent they have complete control over those communications, but as always... Uh, these are problems that if you're ever thinking about this, you, about doing something like this, you've got to control the idea, the, the, the problem of uh, before the plane kind of crashes and burns and stuff, the plane's got very good communication between back to base, back to air traffic control. Uh, how do you stop the pilots from spilling the beans on what's going on, saying anything? 
you know. Um, I mean, we've talked about that, about 9-11 and stuff and how they dealt with that on 9-11, including uh, faking telephone calls uh, from different people to establish a narrative. But, um, yeah, it's th- these are the kind of things, uh, it seems to happen over and over again when we deal with these kind of issues that affect, you know, are designed to affect large and uh, large numbers of people, or manipulate the emotions of large numbers of people. Uh, you're always, yeah, you always end up with with very little to go on yeah. because the people behind it have planned it very well, and you mm-hmm. have to speculate, and you never have the smoking gun ever. There will be no busted wide open on this one, uh, and not even. I mean, the Russians, the evidence they presented have responded to accusations, but there's no kind of. Well, actually, we have satellite video showing exactly how it happened. I think there's a, a part of a game there where if Russia, for example, by this time knows pretty much exactly how it happened and has some clues as to who or what entities were behind it, mm-hmm. it's still not as simple as for them to just publish it. No. Uh, it would also explain our... our question as to why the Russians were going, if, if a bomb took this plane down, why the Russians were going with uh, the jet, highlighting the fact that uh, there was a jet scene, what was that jet doing trailing the air, aircraft and stuff, you know, well, but, why they went with the jet, the idea that it was shot down by a, a missile or, you know, a missile mm, from a, a plane. They, they didn't specifically say that. The reason they brought up that jet uh, that they said was on their radar was because they... Uh, because Kiev had specifically said we had no military jets in the area that day. Yeah. So it was to expose that lie. It wasn't well, to say but, this is our theory for well, what happened. Well, also to impl- implicate it. I mean, the, the implication also is, you know, you said yeah. you had no jets in the area, but one of your jets... The implication is somebody's lying and therefore they're hiding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and also what was that jet potentially doing? You know, everybody's wondering about how the plane came down. You had a jet following it. First of all, you said there was no jet following it. First, so there you go, you're lying on that one. Uh, if you'd please admit now that since uh, we have evidence that there's a jet following it, if you could admit to that, then we can proceed to the next question is, what did that jet do to the plane? Did it do anything to the plane? You know, so establish it in that sense. I mean, for me, there's an implication there going forward that um, that the Russians are suggesting that that jet had something to do with the, with yeah. the downing without saying it explicitly. Yeah. So, and that might tie in with uh, the, the analysis or the theory that I came up with there uh, might tie in with why the Russians are going with that because uh, the jet did in some way compromise uh, the integrity of MH17 I had shot at it um, and that might explain the damage to the cockpit etc but there was also obviously you've got to make sure in that sense and there was also a bomb on the plane so uh, yeah that's a problem but in the meantime, Washington is saying, well, maybe it wasn't Russia, but still, it shouldn't have happened. It was a terrible accident, kind of, they have a fallback. Yeah. But the, the reason they're doing that is, well, not so much that it's a reason, they haven't reasoned this out. They back down because they know for well the Russians can say, well, here's our evidence, mm-hmm. and it shows mm-hmm. their fingerprints all over it. They back down because the job's done. It served its purpose. Yeah. It's an emotional operation. Yeah, job's done. Short term, flash in the pan. Job's R- Russia is now more evil than it was three weeks ago. Move on, next. Yeah, yeah. in terms of the media, it's all about, uh, like we keep saying that this isn't a war in the sense of, uh, well, I mean, I personally don't think there's going to be a war as, as many people are 
uh, fearing or suggesting that there's going to be some kind of a full-scale war between Russia and the West uh, because the war that's being waged and that's happening as people aren't really, apparently a lot of people aren't aware of it, is it's a propaganda war. It's an information war and it's a war for people's minds, you know. I mean, it's much more effective to subvert the thinking and uh, the belief system of millions of people than simply killing them all. What do you achieve by killing them all? Uh, from the point of view of the powers that be, it's much better to take control of these, you know, of, of, of these resources, essentially, these human resources that they use, take control of them, kind of, um, maybe not so much, not exactly body, but certainly mind and soul. Uh, maybe body will come later, but mind and soul is happening right now. That's what the war is for. It's a war for your mind for, by, via the information war, and in particular in regard to um, to Gaza and Israel, it's attempting to subvert the humanity within millions of people by getting them to condone uh, the murder of children and say that the murder of children is good. People who would never in their lives and as normal human beings would never have condoned such a thing. It's instinctively what I was, would be uh, disgusted and repelled by the idea of killing children for no particular reason, for any reason, uh, are being pushed in the direction of uh, sanctioning it, agreeing that it is okay to do that. And for me, that has a, a very direct effect on, on people's own kind of humanity in whatever, whatever way that manifests or whatever way that, uh, whatever reality that has within a sense of a humanity, your soul, your, you know, whatever. That's what's being subverted and uh, that's the war that's going on. And also in Ukraine and, uh, and Russia because, you know, there's, that's a kind of more of a truth versus lies uh, battle going on there as opposed to <clears throat> direct uh, kind of attack on people's humanity. It's, it's, it's the same ballpark essentially as getting people to believe lies uh, uh, as truth uh, and that has a direct effect on people as well from a psychological point of view. And it, I mean, it may even have an effect psych uh, physically on people's brains when they believe lies. You know, there's some kind of cutting edge, cutting edge uh, kind of research into uh, neuropsychology and uh, that when people believe lies, uh, it actually has a degenerative effect on their brain, um, which leads them to be more susceptible to believing more lies. So you you, you uh, infect them with the with the, with the lie in the first first place, the big lie. Get them to get them on side. Get them to believe uh, something that's completely not true and is you know unjust and uh, and then. That causes degeneration in their thinking process, and it's, more, it's easier then yeah. the next time to sell them, and next time and further on down the line until they become just you know, you know, you know, idiots, you know, just uh, village idiots, kind of moronic, and uh, you know, just looking for yeah. next McDonald's or something, you know. Well, step by step, alive is the point. They don't want to kill them all in a nuclear war. They want them pliable, easily manipulated, compliant uh, consumers of crap. You know, they want them to keep going. And they've been very successful. I mean, really what we're seeing in terms of Russia saying no is kind of resistance to that. But most of the planet is yeah. fully behind the lie. It was, there was a, it's kind of amazing. Um, I think it was just, just recently um, they were talking about, um, <clears throat> it was on CNN, 
and there was a panel discussing back and forth. It was called, I think it was on Crossfire and on other shows on CNN. They were all talking about this guy. He's the governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, and he supposedly might be running for president at some point and stuff. And he mentioned, uh, he made reference to the occupation, you know, because they're asked all these questions. You know, you're running for president. What do you think of, uh, you might be running for president. What's your policy on this, that, and the other? And he mentioned Israel, so we had to say something about Israel. And uh, he mentioned the fact that, uh, he just made mention of the occupied territories. And they all, the CNN anchors and, you know, pundits and stuff, uh, all discussed this um, uh, in, in the sense that it was, you know, he made a really big mistake there. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, does, and the other thing was not just him, but also Clinton. Somebody was bringing up, a woman on Crossfire was bringing up Clinton, Hillary Clinton's book that she released recently, uh, where she makes mention of the occupation of Palestine, the occupied Palestinian territory. And this woman on CNN, this anchor, this talking head, was saying, was challenging her, Clinton's kind of, uh, what do you call it, the agent, or whatever, for her book, saying, is she going to retract that issue? Is she going to stand by that statement? I mean, it's ridiculous her talking about occupied territories in, in Israel. Israel is not occupying any Palestinian territory. That's complete lies. And they, they were going on and on and on, yeah. as, if, as if this was actually a reality. I mean, this is the level of discourse amongst... The, the 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 journalists and the talking heads on CNN that are feeding it to the population and they these people themselves appear to be it's not that they're lying here's how bad it's got it's not that they're actually just lying to people knowingly twisting the truth and you know trying to screw people over in that way those idiot anchors themselves actually believe that there is no occupation of Palestinian territory by Israel they I mean that's the only conclusion you come to when you can come to looking or watching this person talk, she actually fully believed. And other people as well, talking about the guy Chris Christie, when he mentioned it, they all are convinced that the idea that Israel is occupying Palestinian territory is completely false. Yeah. What do you do? What do you do in that situation? I know. It, it, it's like, it's not the sky's just green. Talking heads and everybody agrees. in the media, you know, <laughs> their standards have fallen to the pits. We know that. But here's the level of discourse from General E. Martin, Martin E. Dempsey, the chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. Actually, Finian pulled this up a couple of days ago in an article. He said recently to a kind of Aspen, Aspen Security Summit, there's a regular mm. DOD conference held in Colorado. He told his audience when asked about the Russian situation, you've got a Russian government that has made the conscious decision to use its military force inside of another sovereign nation to achieve its objectives. First time, I think, since 1939. The first time that the Russians... The first time that any nation has... Oh, any nation, not just the Russians. ...has made a conscious decision to use its military force inside of another sovereign nation to achieve its objectives. He said that's the first time any nation's ever done that. Since 1939. Since the implication 1939. being Putin's a Hitler and we're so white and good. So they throw out this bullshit, uh, these bullshit lies that, I mean, are, are that, that provably is, That false. is pure projection. Well, yeah. Because that's precisely what he, as the chairman of the U.S. Joint Staff, has made his career doing. Mm. Throwing out, using military force yeah. to achieve political objections in several hundred countries several times over. But how do they get away with actually saying that when just a few years ago not even a few years ago, uh, the U.S. was in Iraq. The U.S. military was in Iraq. How can how can how can you expect to con- 
I don't know. To convince anybody <laughs> no, I, or to have that fly as a plausible scenario that no one since 1939 has invaded or put their military into, the, into, a, into a foreign country. I mean, everybody, has everybody in America forgotten about the Iraq war? I think they have got a while ago. stupider since this blew up in Ukraine the last eight months. They have got markedly worse. Yeah, it's like hysteria that, they, you know, it just, it just winds them the up. The brain so is much. actually mushed yeah. faster. Because, I mean, there's no other way to explain that. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's bizarre. I mean, maybe it's the whole reality creating thing taken to its almost to its really full extreme where, where you, you reinvent really, the past. You have, yeah. But, I mean, you have who, does that? who does that to the, you know, who's the supreme example of that? Everybody. Zionist Israel. Well, yeah. Reinventing your past. Yeah, complete break. Justify the most extreme use of military force to achieve political objectives. Yeah, well, it's one thing to reinvent your past, you know, your mythical past going way back when, but to reinvent your past from a few years ago and, and to have a complete break with that and pretend it didn't happen and state it publicly, you would think you would be laughed, the laughing stock of the interwebs and the whole world type of thing. Anybody who looked at it would just go, what the hell is he talking about? Is he... Is he like, is he on some kind of drug or something? But no, apparently people go, uh-huh, uh-huh, okay, right, yeah. Okay, so nobody's invaded another country since, uh, uh, really? I mean, how do you, I don't know, I don't know, I don't have, a, this world is, uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, and stuff. And stuff. Because, you know, it just leaves you speechless. Basically, it leaves you completely speechless. You don't I, I tell you, last month with MH17, with those two other planes that crashed within five days, with uh, the launch of Protective Edge in Gaza, riots uh, in the West Bank, protests all over the world, ramping up the chaos in Ukraine. By the way, all that stuff about... Oh, we we need to have an impartial investigation of what happened to MHC, but we can't do it because the rebels are in the way. They have only just arrived. His national team of investigators have only just arrived because the Kiev junta has been firing yeah. at them. They had to be forced to stop. Kiev had to be forced to stop their 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 kind of ragtag bunch of military people from lobbing you know, grad missiles into the area and say, listen, can you please stop that? Because we'd like to get in and, you know. So, but of course, it's all, according to the media, it's all Russia's fault and the separatist's fault. They're the ones doing it. Everything's, I mean, it's very, it gets very hard to actually comment on this kind of stuff when it has almost no basis in reality whatsoever. Yeah. Because it, it feels a bit redundant to actually say anything about something that is, you would think is so patently uh, a, a lie and, and divorced from reality. I mean, when something, it's like someone comes along and says, the sky is green and the grass is blue. Are you going to argue with someone like that? No, you're just going to go, you're going to have a knowing look between you and your other sane people. Say, God, God love him. Well, he's, he's a bit crazy, you know. You're not going to, you're not going to say, how dare you suggest the sky is green and the grass is blue. That's not true. Let's have an investigation. I mean, you're not going to do that. You're just going to go, throw your eyes up and say, well, some people, they just, you know. But that's not what happens because the people, the sky is green and the grass is blue people are the people in power and they have the media behind them and the media is churning out sky is green and grass is blue. And we're meant to comment on it. We're meant to argue with them. 
and point out the fact that, uh, no, did, I mean, it's just us. Are we crazy? What's going on, you know? Uh, what I was going to say was it, last month being so mental, I've been keeping a close eye on seismic events, weather events, fireballs have increased again. It was just crazy what happened last month. I mean, yeah, hailstones the size of baseballs hitting all over the world. Even India in July, Spain, July, tornadoes everywhere. It's just, it it seems like there's this this chaos that seems to match what's going on. Well, it's craziness, insanity, you know. I mean, if people want to be insane here, the the natural world is going to, it's going to match their insanity and say, y'all want to be crazy? Here, I'll be crazy too. And go bonkers and wreck the place, basically, you know. Uh, and that seems to be what's happened, what you're saying, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it gets to the point. I mean, you feel like you're kind of, you know, it feels kind of pointless to actually engage in it, you know, because you don't need to comment on it. You think you don't need to comment on it because you think, okay, in some cases I need to comment on stuff because it's a bit uh, twisted and it's subtle. The lies are a little bit manipulative and quite subtle and stuff, so I need to clarify that. But more and more, it's just, I don't need to say anything about that because any sane person immediately laughs at it and says that's ridiculous. The time, And if no one's laughing, there's no sane people left. Yeah. And I mean, the, the times of just the other day, you know, when that uh, supposed kidnapped soldier uh, in Gaza. <laughs> I mean, the times, that was just at the time, uh, as Israel was continuing to massacre uh, dozens and dozens and sometimes hundreds of people, uh, civilians a day, that one soldier was supposedly kidnapped, was really soldier kidnapped in Gaza, and that was the title on the front page of the Times of London, full, almost half a page at the top of their main page of their newspaper on that day, when dozens of Palestinians were killed, it was kidnapped in Gaza. And it was a whole story about this guy being kidnapped and how horrible it was. Uh, he's a soldier in a supposed war, using your narrative. Soldiers don't get kidnapped, they get captured. Uh, it's not a big deal. It's not something... It's when the civilians are being slaughtered. That's what you talk about. Not the soldiers who aren't really dying in any great numbers anyway, yeah. but you don't pick one. Yeah. Uh, you see that headline, you say, how am I supposed to react to that? Yeah, kidnap and get well, Big deal. That's a big deal. He's a soldier. He went in there with a gun to try and kill people. And he got captured. He's lucky he didn't get killed. Uh, but anyway, the, you know, the, the Israelis have this Hannibal option. And they've used it before, which is when, because they don't want to any of their soldiers who get uh, captured and bargained then for the release of Palestinian prisoners, uh, they have a Hannibal option, option as they call it, where um, they take him out. and uh, they, shoot, they shoot the soldier? Yeah, he gets killed, yeah. Because it's better that he's dead. A better, better dead soldier than a captured one is their policy. Uh, of course, this is the psychopathic state of Israel, so what do you expect? But, um, you know, they're following the dictates of Yahweh. Yahweh, you know, who just revels in blood and guts and loves to kill people and slaughter everybody. What do you expect, you know? Uh, this is who these people are. Um, so, yeah, it was the day, just a few days ago, that uh, they launched this massive bombardment on Rafa in the southern Gaza Strip, uh, right on the on the border, uh, Rafa refugee camp, right in Gaza on the border of Egypt. They just 
bombed the crap out of it uh, because that's where he was captured, supposedly. And they killed him, and Hamas were like, yeah, we don't know much about him, we lost contact with our people there, and we assume they've all been murdered, and we assume that the Israeli soldier was uh, killed along with them by Israel. Uh, and then so a couple of days later, just yesterday or the day before, Israel says, yeah, we figure he was killed. But in the few days between that, it was like, poor soldier captured in Israel, let's bomb the crap out of Gaza even more. Our poor soldier captured in Palestine, let's bomb the crap out of Palestine even more. And that's where they used that as political capital to supposedly sanction with the connivance of the Western media, who were all up in arms about an Israeli soldier being captured. And so they killed a few hundred more Palestinians on the basis of that, justified by that. And then turned around and said, oh, yeah, well, he wasn't actually captured. He was, uh, he was killed by us. God, does it get any worse? Well, it, apparently it can, Joe. I mean, what, what next? They've used every possible ploy. Are there more? Probably. Do, how do you see this? Uh, Castlet ended at about 1,200 deaths. We're over that now. Yeah, but this but you, I mean, there's no end in sight here. No, this is like the worst in the past, in the recent since, 10 years run of... Uh, well, since, since ever, even it top Since the 80s. Yeah, it tops Lebanon, even, you know, all the, the Lebanese that were slaughtered by Israel. Um, it tops that. I think that topped that at about 1,600 or something. That's past that at this point. But there's some sign that the Israelis are now saying, OK, we're going to kind of back away slowly on hard terms, basically not giving anything to, to Hamas or the, uh, the Palestinians, just having, you know, killed a couple of thousand and then they'll back out now, you know. Um, there's some signs that it may be going in that direction. Of course, you can never tell, but um, that's uh, it. Still remains to be seen what they're what they're going to do with uh, you know. There's this idea that they created a no-go zone around the border of the entire you know on three sides of the Gaza Strip, apart from the apart from the seaside. Uh, on three sides, they have a three-kilometer kind of no-man's land where they were. Uh, focusing their bombardment and destroying houses and buildings and lives, they established this supposed no-go zone uh, three kilometres in. But three kilometres in all the way around on three sides of Gaza is about 40-some percent of the actual Gaza area. So the question is, are they going to you know, keep that essentially and, and not maybe incorporate it into Israel? Maybe down the line they'll incorporate it into Israel, but essentially have that as a demilitarised zone, as in no one lives there and uh, so the 1.8 million people in Gaza, 25 miles long by 6 miles wide, have had their that area of 25 miles long by 6 miles wide reduced by about 44%. So they're just going to squeeze them harder. Well, it'll push them, but it'll push uh, Gazans up to the the uh, Gaza up to the most densely populated uh, place on the planet. It's now it's a fifth or something like that. But take away 44% of the land, and you've got it. It's, it's number one. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of theories about gas fields under Gaza and Israel wants control of the gas fields. And that may be true. It may be just a, a bonus type thing. But I kind of tend to think that those kind of, uh, you know, explanations are trying desperately to find a rationale, something that you can latch on to in some way, even even though it's horrible and totally unjustifiable, some way for normal people in their minds to say, well, there's some reason that they're doing this, something that mm. I can, even though I would never ever condone it and think it's, uh, it's, it's gruesome and, and totally inhuman, some way I can latch on to a, a rationale that, that in their minds. But people can understand greed. 
Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you had a lot of anti-war protesters when the U.S. invaded Iraq. Yeah. They could understand it as horrific as it got yeah. because, oh, it's blood for oil. Yeah. But we're in there for but, the oil. Yeah. Well, it wasn't really just that. No, I think. And the, how do you justify killing two million people? I mean, yeah. I mean, you can, you can, yeah, and you can go in Gaza. You can go to okay. Let's dismiss the gas and stuff. They they don't not too concerned about that. Um, they'll get it anyway. I mean, they control all of Gaza. I mean, Gaza is effectively occupied. Uh, all of the West Bank is occupied. It's all occupied territory. People don't realize that all of Palestine, or what's left of Palestine, is occupied. I mean, it's under civil and military control. Despite the few areas that are under Palestinian control, it's all effectively under civil and military control of Israel, i.e. Palestinians and their authorities have no say really whatsoever in anything important about what happens in all Palestine. And not only that, but dotted all across Palestine are Jewish villages, Jewish towns that have been set up settlements which are illegal because this is Palestine. So the occupation is illegal and the building of settlements is even more illegal because it really, you know, creates facts in the grounds that establish, uh, that establish the Israeli occupation in terms of the long term and, and, and deny Palestinians the, Palestinians the right to their own, uh, you know, their own land. And, and there's 300,000 Israelis plus more, 300,000, 400,000 Israelis in these settlements inside Palestine on Palestinian land. Do you think Israel's ever going to get rid of that? They're never going to get rid of it. They get rid of a few settlements out of Gaza, a few thousand people. And it was hell to pay over that, but they were able to do it. There's no way they're ever going to remove the well-established settlements, Israeli settlements inside Palestine. You know, there's 400,000 right-wing Orthodox Jews, mostly, in those settlements. I mean, <clears throat> that's too many people. They'd all take up arms. If the Israeli military tried to come and take, get rid of them, there'd be a bloodbath among, among, among Israelis, you know? They're not, never going to leave. So it seems to me that in terms of the whole one-state or two-state solution, Israel has made it very, very clear that they were, they're going for a one-state solution, right? The, I mean, the idea of a two-state solution, if you look at what is left of, the, of, of Palestinian land, it's not possible, you know? That is all going to be, because of those settlements, that is all effectively de facto a part of Israel as far as the Israelis are concerned. So the only question remains is, what are Israel's plans for the Palestinians? And if you look at what's going on in Gaza, you get a good idea of what their plans are for Palestinians. It's bomb them, kill them, slaughter them, massacre them. Uh, yeah. Maybe if we do that enough, they might all leave. If not, we'll just keep doing it until there's none left. Whether or not they strategically think about, oh, is now the time, mm, let's see, let's see if we can change it, maybe do it now, oh, okay, do it now. Whether or not Israelis think like that, I think there comes a time when there is conscience, the world conscience has been sufficiently dulled that they will move in and liquidate everyone. Yeah, they really do. Let's simply bomb fun. them. Some other means. I mean, just a parallel with Ukraine. Uh, Finian mentioned it in passing. I thought, uh, that's dodgy. The Russians were saying that Kiev has used ballistic missiles. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but ballistic missiles are big-ass missiles, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think the U.S. used ballistic missiles in Iraq. No. These are the things that you fire to another continent 
with a nuclear warhead on yeah, it. Yeah. So the kind of things that the U.S. and Russia and others test fire, but I don't think any of them have ever actually launched an intercontinental ballistic missile. Kiev has access to them and is using them. Mm. I think they will... They have such a carte blanche because they have a complete media backup behind them. Mm-hmm. Kiev's going to do the same thing. 200,000 people have already fled across the borders. They will liquidate all of eastern Ukraine and repopulate it mm-hmm. with, sure that's their plan. with crazies from the West. Yeah. I mean, there's no point in, you know, uh, there's no point in, you know, trying to whitewash it in any way or to make it sound a bit better. I mean, obviously what's going, what's happening in Ukraine and in Gaza and Palestine uh, is a war by psychopaths in power on freedom as expressed by civilian, a civilian population or civilian populations. The civilian population of East Ukraine um, wanted freedom, essentially, wanted to chart their own course, wanted independence from Kiev. They didn't want to do what the, the, the powers that be in Kiev and their, and their masters in the West wanted. They said, no, we want to do our own thing. We don't want to play your game. We want freedom, essentially, independence. And that was responded to by, is being responded to, by bombing those civilians. Because the, 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 the will in East Ukraine was from the ordinary people. A very small number of them took up arms. But the vast majority of people in East Ukraine are civilians who uh, have not fired any guns and don't know how to fire guns. That's, but they're the people who are expressing the will to, to be independent. And they're the ones who are being attacked. They're the ones who are being bombed. I mean, you look at the videos. They're fi- the Kiev government, the Kiev troops are firing Grad missiles, which are unguided, mis- uh, unguided rockets, you know, with, you know, 40 pounds of, of explosives in, in, in the head. And they create a very large explosion and, you know, shrapnel and debris goes everywhere and cuts legs and heads and arms off. And they fire, you know, dozens of these at towns and cities, parts of cities in East Ukraine. And they're completely unguided except in a very vague general area. You know, we're going to hit that area that's, uh, you know, two miles, one mile by two miles type thing or, you know, whatever the actual scope of it is. It cannot be used for pinpointing, you know, if, if there's a group of separatists hiding in some trees somewhere. You can't use a grad to hit them because it could land 100 yards or 200 yards away from them. But they launch dozens of them at a time, supposedly trying to do that. So obviously, they're not stupid, right? They know that when they fire weapons, those kind of weapons, those kind of missiles into populated areas, they know they're going to kill civilians. And it's not even, I mean, in that scenario, in the same in Gaza, it's not they're saying, let's kill some civilians so that we can at least, uh, you know, we're trying to kill the, the, the terrorists, as they call them, but we're willing to accept collateral damage of civilians. That's not the correct way to look at it, because they have to know that when they fire those, those rockets, they're going to kill civilians and most likely only civilians. Therefore, therefore, the intent is to kill civilians, and that ties in with their understanding that the problem in East Ukraine and the problem in Gaza is not Hamas or uh, Russian, pro-Russian separatists. It's the local civilian population. Yeah. And that's who's being attacked very consciously, very deliberately, and you know, based in a, in, a, in a correct understanding of what their problem is, what the powers that be in those countries' problem is, which is the civilian population. Mm-hmm. So kill them.
Yeah. We have four members who can vouch for reports in Russian media that people are, young men, are being abducted in various parts of eastern Ukraine. And given the choice, you fight for us or else. And the situation there is is bad. It's really bad. Yeah. Uh, but amongst that chaos, I mean, they don't just fire and, ex- and know full well that they're going to hit people. They also hit the train tracks that prevented the bodies from leaving the nearest big town. Mm-hmm. That's part of the delay. They they blew that up deliberately. Yeah, it's not to terrorize the local population. You know, kill them and terrorize the rest uh, into submission. In fact, in addition to that, yesterday they bombed the small village uh, right where the plane landed, Huravde or something. How you pronounce it? I mean, it's just. It's just pure insanity, and I don't think we've got people hoping that Putin will step in, or I don't know. I, I don't think he will, unless Kiev is unleashed on Crimea. But at that point, you're back to Washington doing that deliberately, but in the context of not actually creating a situation where nukes are launched. Will they actually go to that extent? No, I think they'll still, they'll just keep killing people, ordinary people. They won't make a point of, I don't know. I was going to say they won't make a point of drawing Russia into a war, and yet they're doing everything they can to make Russia. I mean, they're firing into Russia proper. Yeah, but Russia won't won't, uh, engage in hostilities directly or officially uh, unless it, it absolutely has to. And in that situation, Russia will attack only uh, other military forces. Russia has shown a lot of restraint, and which is indicative of uh, uh, a government that does not want to kill civilians. Um, that I mean, it could just launch a bunch of rockets uh, back over the border into, into Ukraine and try and take out the Kiev forces, but they realize that those people are, you know, are now occupying many towns and stuff. If they were going to attack the Kiev forces, they'd be risking civilian lives, so they don't want to do that. But the West wants to bait them into doing that. So the West gets away with doing that itself. And uh, it's whitewashed, you know. Nobody talks about it, as Finian was saying. But you can, you can bet your ass at the moment mm-hmm. that the Russians did something similar. There would be Civilians slaughtered, you know, you'd be hearing all the things about civilians being killed yeah. that you're not hearing right now. And, and that narrative they laid about Ukraine. the narrative they laid about Putin being Hitler will be cemented. Mm-hmm. Voila, facts on the ground. And I reckon, uh, I mean, if we can come up with that kind of uh, an analysis of the situation, the Russians can. Uh, yeah, an understanding of the way that the West operates, the Russian and better as the Russians and Putin understands that that's what's going on, and they're not so stupid. But it puts them in a very difficult position in, in terms of how they're going to respond and how they have to maneuver, you know. And so it's a waiting game, and nobody can blame Putin for not coming in and riding in on a horse or a bear or a shark or a, or whatever other animal he rides into Ukraine and saving everybody. I mean, you got to be realistic about it. That's not. It's not so easy. He's not up against a kind of pushover, a stupid kind of um, enemy here. Uh, I mean, this is an enemy that, uh, although extremely pathological and, you know, 
that believes their own kind of reality type thing. They're also very shrewd and very manipulative in a psychopathic way. Enormously powerful. Enormously powerful. Maybe they're aware, the Ruskies are aware of what climate change really means, or they have a far better idea of it. I mean, again, if we're aware of it. Mm -hmm. Well, there's some things we're aware of that very few people uh, are aware of. But um, I'd say the Russians do have a better understanding of it because they tend to be just more open-minded in that sense and not quite so much up their own backsides, if I can use that phrase, in terms of creating their own reality. You know, they do tend to take stock of actual objective reality more. And in that sense, they may uh, probably do have a better handle on environmental stuff going on as well. But to put it in the proper context or in the context that we put it into, I don't think anybody really does that. It's a bit too far out there, you know. Bring on the comets. And please hit Washington first. Yeah. And uh, Tel Aviv. And Tel Aviv. Anyway, anyway um, yeah. Let's so we're going to leave there. We've kind of like Whoa. rambled on here long enough. Uh, just want to thank Finian again. Uh he does a good job. Uh, sorry again about the connection speed. It was a bit dodgy, very dodgy. But, you know, we will be back next week with another show. Uh, thanks to our chatters and to our listeners and to everybody else, whatever you were doing. Uh, <laughs> uh, we hope you enjoy the show. We, Like I said, we'll be back next week with another show um, as yet to be announced. Until then, have a good one. Thanks all. Take care.